Hello and welcome to Cutting In From The Left, episode four. I'm your host, Tom Wise, and I've got with me Luis Antonio Streeter. How are you, Luis? Hi, Tom. Uh, doing well. Uh, enjoying the, the nice weather. Yeah, looking forward to this one. It's good to hear. I've managed to get sunburnt already. Sunburnt in 16 degrees heat, so I'm dreading what's going to come in the summer. We'll be doing our usual today where we cover a few games, uh, have a little bit of a quiz, and then look at some of the articles from the weekend, some of the more serious topics. What I wanted to start with, what I thought was the best game this weekend, the early Saturday kickoff, which was between Chelsea and West Brom. I imagine a few football snobs or elitists would maybe see a game involving West Brom and turn their nose up a bit, especially against Chelsea, who haven't, haven't been that, that exciting really since Tuchel came in. But they didn't watch it. They really missed out on a cracker. Chelsea hadn't conceded a goal before the game in 12 hours. They hadn't lost a game under their German coach. And West Brom are mired in relegation trouble, as we know. Uh, Sam Allardyce says, said before the game they needed to win six of their nine remaining games to get out of the mire. It started with Chelsea taking the lead. Um, Mason Mount scored from a, a free kick that rebounded off the post. Then the game sort of turned on its head when Thiago Silva got sent off for a second booking. It was something, it was a terrible mistake for a player of his experience. Went off his feet, trying to block a shot, ended up fouling a West Brom forward and he got his uh, marching orders. After that, West Brom gallantly managed to turn the game around. They equalised in half-time injury time through Mateus Pereira and then they took the lead just a minute later before the half-time break through Pereira again. Second half, Callum Robinson scored an excellent volley from the edge of the box, like potential goal of the season contender, I'd have said. Uh, Diang scored for West Brom to make it 4-1. Mount then scored again, which was a tap-in to make it 4-2. And then to finish it off, Callum Robinson scored again uh, to make it 5-2. Robinson hadn't played for West Brom for eight games before this, not really one of uh, Big Sam's favourites. He actually only came on uh, after Ivanovic got taken off for West Brom, Ivanovic only managed to last 13 minutes. Uh, it was a quite interesting, actually. He, he was chasing Timo Werner down for the ball and he did a really good job, to be fair, keeping pace with him, one of the quickest players in Europe. Uh, but after that one sprint, he had to come off, which was quite funny against his old team. So Ivanovic came off, Robinson came on and, yeah, he played a blinder. So, yeah, I just wondered what you made of that, mate. Yeah, specifically on Ivanovic, I think I saw some people um, on Twitter posting about how it's similar to a, to a Sunday League player, um, sort of exerting all their energy in one valiant effort and having to come off because they're knackered. Um, but no, I think a, a stat which kind of highlights just how incredible this game was, uh, I think 27% of Chelsea's total goals conceded in the Premier League this season are against West Brom. So, I mean, oh, wow. yeah, considering how strong Chelsea's defensive record was going into this game, I don't think anyone envisaged what happened. I guess you could write it off as one of those freak results, but perhaps it does tell you that um, there is a little bit of a soft underbelly there with Chelsea in particular, I guess, missing once the red card happened, Thiago Silva's experience, um, his ability to be a real leader for them at the back. They seem to fall apart a little bit after that. On West Brom's side, it sort of keeps their hopes alive, as you say, even with this win, they need maybe perhaps five more wins, and it's going to be very hard to pick those up. Stranger things have happened, West Brom themselves, 
were known for their, their supposed great escape. I think it was um, 0405. Yeah, that was um, it, weren't it? They were, they were they the first team bottom bottom at Christmas to survive at the end of the season. I think something like that. Yeah, and we've seen the likes of um, Fulham and Sunderland on a couple of occasions pulled that off as well. So it's it's not outside the realms of possibility that they could still mount an effort to keep themselves up. But yeah, it'll take all of um, Big Sam's prowess to, to pull that one off. Yeah, so if we if we do go with that, I've actually got the games in front of me here. So say yeah, so they've got their first of the six wins they wanted. Can you see five wins out of these games? Right. So Southampton at home, win for West Brom or not? They could do that one. Yeah. 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 Okay, that could be one of them. Uh, Leicester away, any chance? Tough. <laughs> I'd be inclined not to give them that one. No. Yeah. Uh, Aston Villa away. Let's say, yeah, I mean, Derby game, anything can happen. They'll be up for it. Uh, another Derby uh, the next week, Wolves at home. So, yeah, potentially. Again, yeah. Uh, Arsenal away, they are terrible, which we'll get on to. So, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be inclined to say, you know, if they've won three games, then every chance they might beat Arsenal. Uh, Liverpool at home, West Ham at home, and then Leeds away as the final three. It's not the worst possible run of fixtures for them. Um and you have to say, yeah, if they get if they get another win against Southampton in the next game, then you'll really start to get some confidence that they might do it. And I think that will probably feed into the rest of the fixtures. So I think that's probably the key game. You know, obviously it's a cliche, but they've got to go one game at a time and say, okay, look, we've got a great result here. We can build on that. And Southampton are to some extent there for the taking. Um, they don't have the strongest defence recently either. So yeah, I think. At the end of the day, stranger things have happened. Uh, and um it'll be interesting to see how that battle goes. Obviously, you've got Newcastle and Brighton. It's done a little bit of trouble down there uh, and see how it all pans out. Yeah, I think I don't think we want to cover uh, the Newcastle game in, in much detail, but I think well, I mean they got that late equalizer. Yeah, I'd say that was uh that that game had a bit of an impact on this one, really, because you obviously have West Brom with these tiny hopes of surviving pipping Newcastle. Um, and then you had Newcastle playing Spurs and Chelsea obviously battling Spurs for the last Champions League spot. I was going to say Chelsea stay in fourth because of Spurs actually dropping points in that game with Newcastle. But they can lose fourth spot if West Ham beat Wolves tonight. We'll, we'll see what happens. I, I think with Chelsea, they, they've looked so assured this whole time. It was just such a freak result. You would still back them probably to make Champions League, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what their running is looking like, but um, you would still probably back them if they can just get their composure back um, after that and uh, ensure they tighten up again at the back. Yeah, I'd, l- I'd love to see West Ham make it, but I, I read today as well that I think Rice is out for a month. He's, he's even yeah. he's, he's a doubt even for the Euros, so that'll, that'll impact West Ham, won't it? We'll move on now to the, the Arsenal-Liverpool game. This was... Two of your stereotypical top, big four, Arsenal Liverpool. Before the game, Arsenal were without Saka, without Smith Rowe, without Xhaka, without David Luiz. Saka and Smith Rowe, I would say, have been two of their brightest lights this season. They didn't have them. Liverpool team news they'd restored Fabinho to the midfield. Uh, Klopp was putting faith in his Phillips and Kabak centre half partnership. I'd say the game sort of changed on the hour mark when Jota replaced Robertson. 
and he had this immediate impact uh, heading in a, an excellent cross from Trent Alexander-Arnold. An amazing cross from Trent. You know, maybe he's been pushed by his England doubters to play a bit better. Maybe Fabinho's return has like freed him up a little bit, but that, that cross was absolutely beautiful and it was headed in really well. The second goal, uh, Salah picked the ball up on the right wing. He sort of dribbled around Gabriel, who had a pretty terrible game at centre-back for Arsenal. He, he dribbled around him and then neatly tucked it between Leno's legs to make it 2-0. And the third goal, Gabriel trying to trying the strangest sort of lob pass out from the back to his left back, went nowhere near him. Salah picked the ball up, put it back into the box, and then Jota ran onto it from the left wing and, and tucked it away. Yeah, so as the Liverpool fan you are, I'm sure you were pretty pleased with this one, yeah? Yeah, I think, um, as you say, sort of the hour mark was a turning point. I would say before that, um, especially in the first half, a lot of Liverpool domination, but fairly sterile. Not a lot going on in the match. Um, you could tell that Liverpool had the edge in terms of quality, but couldn't really turn the screw yet. Perhaps they were just waiting for some legs to tire, for example. I think the commentators for the game were also quite right when they said that um, it's almost the old Arsenal. They're looking very stale. Um, they didn't really have any ideas, seemingly, for what they could do. Like as Lacazette, Aubameyang looked like they were kind of shut out of the game. Um, there wasn't a whole lot going on in midfield for them. Um, and as you say, they lacked kind of the youthful energy of Saka, Smith Rowe, players like that who have come in and energised the team. And even if you say they're not world beaters or they have the potential to be world beaters but not aren't at the moment, um, they actually add a little bit of obsessed and energy to that team, which otherwise looks really, yeah, sort of dour, boring. And they offered absolutely nothing going forward, to be honest. And yeah, it was almost a matter of time, really, before obviously the introduction of Jota changed the game uh, and then allowed a pretty comfortable victory in the end. So even I felt that when it was still nil-nil, that it was always going to come because Arsenal just seemed to offer absolutely nothing, to be honest. Yeah, it was really hard to watch. You know, not that I'm in any way affiliated with Arsenal, but they were just embarrassing. Like, they were struggling to keep the ball. The players that you mentioned, like Lacazette and Aubameyang, like, they just, they don't seem to have been on it all season, really. You know, Aubameyang got his hat-trick, uh, you know, in the last month, was it? Maybe just before that. And maybe people were suggesting it's time to stick him in the fantasy team or maybe it's time that he's going to kick on now. But he, he's, he's just been really poor. And... It sort of it reminds you, doesn't it, of when there's talk around an Arsenal player leaving, they will do everything in their power, pay whatever price to keep this star asset. And it's like shades of Mesut Ozil. Like they've done the same yeah. with they've done the same with Aubameyang now. Like he's he's not even that old, but you've got people saying he's past it, or you know he's he just isn't good enough anymore. And this is this is the man who's you know he's got a golden boot to his name in the Premier League. Like I I don't quite know what's gone wrong there like have you got any any insight there yeah I think on the point of Ozil it's almost that when you treat a player like he's a be and end all of the club and they're going to fall apart without him then you give him as you say kind of operated this fat contract and to say oh you're always going to be in the team we can't drop you and it's not exactly going to motivate the player to be the best they can because they know that they're placing the team secure they've got to say a three or four year contract um, on, I don't know, 300, 400k a week. What's their incentive? I mean, you've got to treat them as, as rational human beings, as footballers. Like, why would he go out there and play 
and really push and scrap for the team when he knows he's so secure, so comfortable. And he knows quite frankly that he's better than everyone else around him. So even if he does put in 70% every week, he can still be almost a star in the team uh, and no one's going to get on his back too much. So why wouldn't he to a certain extent? And it's not like I'm impugning or banning his character in any regard, but it almost kind of seeps in subconsciously or unconsciously as well. You're just thinking, you know, I'm just not going to chase after that ball or kind of stick my head on it in the box and sort of reach out and track back as, as hard as I could just because you've got that element of why should I? And what, especially if the rest of the team's not performing, why am I being held to a higher standard because I'm a better player than the rest of the team? Isn't it their job to step up and join me on my level and then maybe I can flourish and score some goals? So I think there's definitely a psychological element in that as well. Yeah, I, I just think it's like with Aubameyang, if he was at least doing things at, at his own at the right end of the pitch, you could almost forgive him for being, let you say, a bit lazy in tracking back or trying to block some of them crosses that Trent was putting in. You could almost forgive that, but just just really nothing going forward. Like I think this game must solidify in Arteta's mind that he has to just go with the youth from this point onwards. Like, and even talking about other Arsenal youngsters that are out on loan, like Maitland Niles is obviously. Um, playing for West Brom and they had a great result as we were just talking about and Joe Willock he was the man that got the mm-hmm. equaliser for Newcastle so it's like these lads that you sent on loan you know could they be getting in the first team over some of these these people that, that just don't really seem hungry enough I don't know yeah I think absolutely that, that's what he's going to do um, that's what they need to do is just rebuild and to be honest because they've, they've often had that talk on the financial side of they've got too many players on big contracts they don't want to pay big wages anymore which doesn't really chime with the fact that they gave William a big contract just as the past summer. But um, but anyway, if, they, if that is something they are looking to do, then it makes sense from both a footballing and a financial perspective to really focus on, the, on those young players. Um, yeah, and even mix that in with, with one or two loans. I mean, success of Ceballos and Odegaard, kind of loan players coming in from, you know, obviously, kind of super club like Real Madrid. It's maybe sort of tacit understanding that Arsenal aren't one of those super clubs anymore. Maybe they need to adapt to, if we're going to get that top quality young talent, sometimes it's going to have to be on loan and you're going to have to accept that. And maybe there's a chance there then snap them up if they're not needed at their uh, their parent club as well. Um, But yeah, I think maybe they're just accepting that they have to operate in a slightly different way than they did perhaps when they were the invincibles or at the peak of their powers. Yeah, I think the more that you see Arsenal players they did at the weekend the more you just have to give credit to uh, Arsene Wenger and what he did how many successive years he got them into the Champions League I know football's changed a lot in the last 10 years but it was just it's such an achievement really weren't it because they look a million miles away from that right now talking Champions League do you think Liverpool can sneak into that top four uh, they're two points off of fourth right now they've, they've done well haven't they really after the amazing run of losses at home yeah, I think getting Fabinho back in the midfield has been absolutely key. Having now sort of at least semi-settled partnership with Phillips and Quebec is also a big help. It just generally stabilises the team a bit when you've got that core, that spine there. And Jota coming back, I mean, really exciting. He's got, I think, something like 12 goals and 13 appearances this oh. season. Um, so, I mean, he's, he's always good for a goal or an assist when he's on the pitch. So he really adds that exciting element that perhaps... Obviously, Firmino has, has his own qualities, but in terms of goal output and assist output, 
can't deny that the shot has been a lot um, a lot better with that this season. Uh, and there's someone either if you start him or he comes off the bench, um, it's going to give you that extra spark. He had a great international break as well, scoring for Portugal. I, I just think when he was coming on, even you had that sense that this is the, this is the spark, this is the man that's going to change this game, and he's he's been an amazing sign, hasn't he? Like he's he's absolutely. Mm. If he wasn't injured for Liverpool this for a big bit of the season, you don't know where they'd be really. Yeah, I definitely think that the top four race would be quite different, but it's shaping up to be a, a very interesting race now. I mean, obviously we have Chelsea, Spurs certainly aren't out of it yet. Got Leicester, West Ham. Even, yeah, sort of Man United as well. I mean, there's a lot of different almost permutations that could happen uh, depending, obviously, on teams' uh, current performance in Europa League and Champions League as well. So, obviously, a lot of the English teams are in the latter stages. You have to see how that affects performances um, and also perhaps a certain fear of injury um, when you're leading up to the Euros as well. Is that going to affect some players and some managers' kind of demands on their players as well? they want to rest them to make sure they're not playing two games in a week so they don't break down ahead of the Euros. But yeah, there'll be some very interesting uh, kind of scenarios and uh, predictions to look at for them, I'm sure. We've got Champions League returning, obviously, this week as well. That's come around quite quick. Uh, Liverpool, Real Madrid. Do you, do you fancy Liverpool in that game? Actually, I do. I think you can never discount Real Madrid in the Champions League in particular. It is almost their competition. But nothing that I've seen from this season suggests that they are a particularly dangerous side at the moment. And I think Liverpool can display the kind of form that they did against Arsenal and the kind of control in midfield uh, with Fabinho in there. Then I think probably have enough to, to dominate over the two legs and probably secure the result. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the games we've got in the quarterfinals this week. And, and it, I think... The English clubs will fancy themselves, don't you? Like Liverpool, obviously, Real Madrid, Man City, Dortmund. Dortmund are struggling at the minute. Um, Bayern, PSG and Porto, Chelsea. Despite Chelsea's bad result, you'd still think they'd back themselves to beat Porto. And we could go back to the, uh, the good old days of the sort of t- 2000s when we would dominate. You know, we had three English teams in the last four often. So that, that would be a, that'd be a good thing, wouldn't it, in terms of, our, in terms of English football? Yeah, and I think it's it's certainly looking quite likely at the moment. Obviously, you've got Arsenal, Man United in the Europa League as well. Seem to be doing quite well in general and reasonably favourable draws at the moment. So you could definitely see a situation where you've got English clubs really dominating and getting to the finals of these competitions. Now look at the the Spanish Cup final that was played at the weekend, the Copa del Rey, which was an all Basque affair between Athletic Bilbao and Real Sociedad. So this final was meant to be played in April last year. Bilbao had beaten Barcelona and Granada to get to the final, uh, whereas Real Sociedad had beaten Real Madrid and Mirandes to get there. So this was the first all Basque Spanish Cup final of the 22 players that started the game 18 were born in the Basque provinces and 15 were products of either the Real Sociedad or the Real Bilbao youth system 
it was a game that I was quite excited to see, other than the fact it's a derby, which I've heard is quite a fierce derby in Spain. Uh, Sociedad have got players like Alexander Isaac, uh, this, this Swedish striker who I've known for a long time from Football Manager. And I was, uh, I was interested to see what, what he uh, stacked up like in real life, but it wasn't really to be his game as he didn't get the service that, that he wanted. Uh, it all came down to, to a penalty which was tucked away by Oyatabal. I hope I said that right, my Spanish-speaking friend. Yeah, close <laughs> enough. <laughs> um, but yeah, Real Sociedad went on to win 1-0. David Silva nearly managed to play the full 90 minutes, but he was subbed in the 85th minute. Uh, a little stat about him. He joined Man City in 2010, and they won the 2010-11 FA Cup in his first season. This was Man City's first trophy in 35 years. Real Sociedad have now won the Copa del Rey in his first season there. And that is Sociedad's first trophy in 34 years. Strange little stat, but there you go, mate. Nice bit of symmetry there, yeah. Um, absolutely, is this kind of an unprecedented final uh, for best derby there? As you say, a fierce derby, but I think one with a lot of mutual respect on both sides. Um, there was, a, for example, a game back in the 70s. I think 76, where they both walked out um, holding the, the bass flag together uh, as a show of unity when it was still illegal at the time to display, you know, um, just in the post-Franco era. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a unique fixture in many senses. As you say, all the, all the bass players involved and players coming through youth academies. See, famously, Athletic have the policy of only having bass players on the team or having players who came to the bass region, I think, they had to be 16 or below and then integrated into the youth academy uh, that way. And Real Sociedad actually had a similar policy until they signed um, John Aldridge of Liverpool fame. Um, wow, that's interesting. I never knew he was... I knew that they had a similar policy. I didn't know he was the, the one that broke broke it. Yeah. So he was he was the one who came in and kind of spelled the, the exception to that policy. And since then, they still focus very much on Basque players, but do have a few coming from elsewhere, as you mentioned, Isaac. Um, who, yeah, I think didn't have quite the impact you'd expect, but I, he was working really hard. You could tell he you know, puts himself around there for the team. I was impressed with some of his pace as well in terms of chasing down balls. And I guess there was almost a direct comparison with um, Finyaki Williams, who's um golden boy for Athletic. He's also known for sort of his lightning pace, um, really working those channels, running up and down. I think both kind of embody the hard-working nature uh, of the two teams, as well as some of the quality and skill that they have. Um, I don't think it was the, it was the best game, um, but there was a certain excitement and frisson about it, which um, it's nice to see. You could tell how much it meant to both sides, uh, as demonstrated in, in the press conference afterwards as well with um, the Real Sociedad manager, Imanol Alwasil. Now he started um, basically chanting and pulled out a shirt about the team and started sort of celebrating more as a fan, as a manager. I think it was a really nice touch. Uh, something good to see, that genuine passion on show. And obviously, the one real shame was the lack of fans. Um, but I'm sure there were still some very hearty celebrations in San Sebastian um, afterwards. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was just a really nice story that kind of encapsulated what football is to so many people, kind of the importance two clubs who aren't sort of titans but really represent their region in something that I feel is almost a throwback to the way that clubs 
used to represent the communities, obviously in some cases still do, um, but perhaps something that's been lost more and more, unfortunately, uh, in the modern game. Yeah, do you think, like, in, if you were to sort of rank the, the big derbies in Spain in your head, like, is this up there in terms of, like, you know, in terms of the uh, El Clasicos or your Madrid uh, Madrid derby, like, where would this rank? Like, because I feel like the sort of British understanding of Spain is that you have Spain, but obviously it's broken up into the Basque region and Catalonia. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I feel like these derbies matter more than, you know, your, your Brighton's versus Crystal Palace. So, no disrespect to either team. But yeah, I just wondered what you think. Yeah, there's a big cultural weight behind it, which I think it's also comparable a little bit to the, um, there's also the Sevilla derby. Um, so Sevilla Real Betis, which is also a huge match. Um, so that's known, I guess, along with, as you say, the Madrid derby and the Clasico. Uh, so those are probably, I would say, the four big encounters in Spain, and really a lot of a lot of history behind them, um, because they represent, as you say, this kind of different um, regional formations, um, kind of yeah, regionalism, provincialism. That you get in Spain, obviously with the leg- legacy of the extreme centralism imposed by a, a Franco. So you have that real political weight behind them, which is not something that you really get in the UK as much because there wasn't that same concerted kind of effort against that. And there's not the same tradition of kind of having regional heritage come to the fore. Obviously, you do get that a little bit with, um, with games like Liverpool, Manchester United, which do have that element of kind of a regional character of the Northwest. Um, for example, Northeast derbies as well, so like Newcastle, Sunderland, Middlesbrough, there's that kind of regional cultural identity as well. Yeah, as you say, a lot of it in England seems more determined by proximity, um, pure proximity, not really tied to cultural political factors. For example, the London derbies, which don't really have much of a political or cultural character around them at all. Um, it's more just kind of simple sporting rivalry or you know, in cases Spurs Arsenal, it's more you moved your stadium to be in the entire area, so we're not going to like you for that. Which is a reasonable reason to have a to have a football rivalry, but it's not quite the same as you know, build, built up over um, a cultural legacy and a political legacy um, like these matters. So I think it does embody a specific kind of character, um, which is perhaps rare to see, uh, certainly in kind of British football, English football. I guess the closest match you would say is the old firm, which obviously does have a very strong religious, cultural, political character, which makes it almost unique, certainly in the in the kind of the English and Scottish game. Even even with the biggest game, which is arguably the biggest game in world football, Barcelona Real Madrid, it isn't just because you know you have these two very successful clubs, is it? It's all about Franco. Yeah, it's Madrid Barcelona as not just footballing entities, but very much political ones. You've got people flying the Catalan flag or the Spanish flag. I mean, everyone knows exactly what it means in those terms. So, yeah, as you say, it's really not just about footballing rivalry. It's, it spreads to everything. And that's just why, why it was such a big game at the weekend, even if the football on the pitch didn't actually live up to it. And I have seen that they're both playing each other in La Liga Wednesday night, um, <laughs> Athletic Global and Real Sociedad. So if anyone wants to see them do battle again, I'm sure it'll be on, on Premier Sports. And the Athletic of their own um, second cup final coming up against Barcelona very soon. So they'll be hoping to, to right the wrongs of this one um, and hopefully win at least one out of two.
Right, we'll now move on to our quiz of the week, which again will be uh, same club who dis. I think I called it last week, so I'm going to try and uh, try try and get that to stick. Um, I'll list three players. Luis will have to guess which club unites all of them, and then I'll give the answers at the end of the podcast. So, number one, Denver Bar, Andy Carroll. And Rob Green. Number two, Darren Gibson, Danny Higginbottom, and Michael Keane. Number three, John Joe Shelby, Wilfred Bonney, and Wayne Routledge. Number four, Yannick Balassi, Glenn Murray, and Jeffrey Schlupp. And then finally, number five, Leroy Lita, Glenn Little, and Chris Gunter. So I hope I've got your brain working a bit there. How are you, how are you feeling? You got are you stuck on any? Some tough ones in there. Um, I think number two and number five in particular. Let me thinking, but uh, yeah, so, they got them right. So now uh, we'll stay in Spain, and some bad news from the weekend. The Valencia-Cadiz game was overshadowed by a racist incident. Uh, it was Valencia's uh, Diacabe. He was a subject to some racist abuse. And what happens is the, the Valencia team, they went off the pitch, united, obviously, on this, this front against racism. And it ended up with uh, the lad himself, Diacabe, who was subject to this racist abuse, he got subbed off. Valencia, instead of remaining off the pitch, went back on the pitch to finish the game. And it all just seems very messy. Like, what, what, did, what did you make of it? Yeah, having, I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't watching the game at the time, but having looked at it afterwards and read a couple of pieces on it. So, yeah, it just seemed that, that what happened is um, the Valencia players very admirably kind of were told by, by Dia Carby by this, uh, this abuse that had been directed towards him essentially said, you know, if nothing's going to be done about it, we're going to walk off uh, and we're not going to play until, you know, something's been sorted out, if necessary, um, to call off the whole fixture. Um, and judging from the kind of slightly contradictory statements made by Valencia after the game as a club, it seems that at some point, then the minutes after that, the decision was then made to, to continue playing the match without Diakabi. And at first, sort of seeming to claim that was Diakabi's decision himself, that he wanted them to play on uh, without him because he felt that he couldn't go on, but he still wanted the team to see out the fixture. And then later on now, they sort of seem to claim that it was more that it was forced upon them by the, uh, by the referee or by the federation to play the match. And that sort of Diakabi said, sort of went along with that and said, okay, it's fine if you guys want to go out and do that because I don't want the club to get docked um, three points. 
uh, or whatever. And so, in, in a cruel irony, they, they lost the match anyway. So, I mean, they didn't gain anything on the points front from it, and certainly they haven't gained anything in terms of actually making a statement against racism, when really, obviously, they should have, the club and, and the manager, where we're responsible for the decision to go back out, should have really stuck with the players who um, clearly didn't want to go back out themselves. And there are a few of them having to be sort of consoled by their teammates. It's basically saying, we don't want to be back out there. It's kind of shown that in the listless nature afterwards of the performance, they didn't really want to be there quite naturally. So, um, so yeah, it was a shame that something that could have been a really grand statement of anti-racism from the players turned out to be something which didn't really have that much impact. As you say, you had you had the player who was abused himself having to sit in the stands, while the player who kind of allegedly abused him was still out there on the pitch, able to play. So yeah, it was it was sad to see that. Um, kind of looking looking back on that, it's it is quite a failing there. And I don't know if the failing is more of, of the club in terms of Valencia, or if it, indeed it is something that the federation, the referee, have basically told them you need to go out there and complete this fixture. Um, I suspect there's a bit of blame on both sides there, um, because to be honest, Valencia should, even if they were being threatened like that, they should have just said, well, we don't care. I mean, if you have the Dockers three points, Dockers three points, because it's more important than that. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if there's an inquiry into this. Hopefully, you know, we can get some element of justice uh, in play here. And hopefully this will encourage more players uh, in teams, not just in Spain, but around Europe and the world indeed. Uh, to use the same kind of gesture of solidarity. But yeah, it was a shame that it was undermined by their own by their own club ultimately. Yeah, and as you say, it's it's been in the news uh, in recent weeks with the Rangers game as well. Uh, Glenn Kamara uh, being racially abused by Kudela um, playing for Slavia Prague. And with this Valencia game, with the players walking off, it, it must, like, I'm the same as you, like, I didn't see this live, but it must have felt like a really big moment. Like this... This is such a big deal. This is one of the biggest clubs in Spain, like making such a good stand against racism. But then to come back out, it's like you say, like it's the threat of being docked points. It almost it just shouldn't matter. This isn't like a, this is a bigger deal. Yeah. Like this 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 is a much bigger deal than than just sport or anything like that. Like it can't be allowed, can it? And it's just so hard when you get so close to doing a good thing, bringing the lads off the pitch to then go back on. Well. The, the guy who's been racially abused is forced to just sort of sit there with his with his mask on like it, it's it's terrible and and also from what i've read uh, the valencia players they did they have his shirt ready to hold up in in honor of him if they'd won the match and then like you say yeah. they didn't so <laughs> if that was going to be their big moment to raise a shirt aloft and you know defeat racism forever then it did <laughs> it it didn't happen no exactly um and I think it's one of those, it's almost that people think it's, oh, a Hollywood film and we can, um, if we win the match against the racists, then um, we've defeated them. That almost seems to be the story in some of the British press as well, when you have those games where women go to, I mean, not to generalise about Eastern European or Balkan country, but say to Montenegro or, or to Serbia or somewhere of that nature, where, you know, some of the black players, perhaps Sterling, gets a bit of stick, um, or even you know has, has some really horrible comments aimed at them, and then we sort of beat them five 0 and everyone's crying the press. Oh, how we beat these these big bad racists! 
then you think, well, I mean, first of all, that this doesn't ha just happen in those regions. It happens in England and the UK as well. Uh, and second of all, beating them in the football match is not going to convince them that that they were wrong. Because this isn't about footballing ability. They weren't saying, oh, um, you know, we're going to chant racial abuse at Raheem Sterling because he's bad at football. They know he's not, which is part of why they get the abuse as well, because they stand out as prominent uh, as prominent players. Um, so, you know, them being, being beaten five no, is not going to convince them of some anti-racist truth. Almost the opposite, in fact. Um, and so it's not something that we should be focused on in terms of kind of beating these teams. We should just be saying, you know, cancel the football, don't play the match at all. Um, walk off the pitch, because that's going to have much more of an impact. And that's actually going to say make, make a statement and stand in solidarity with these players um, instead of saying, oh, it's fine because we beat them afterwards and look, look how nice isn't that for, uh, great for everyone and, and we can all move on with our lives. I think the British tabloids especially want you to think that you can beat racism 3-0 or 4-0 because if it ever led to having to actually do any more than that, then they would be entirely culpable of, you know, fostering so many racist attitudes like it's not as it's not saying they outright agree with any of these terrible things that that players get called but they you know they'd have to have a hard look at themselves if they think that like they're celebrating a win over racism by by beating like you say like serbia or whatever 2-0 or albania but yeah i i i just find it terrible i i can't imagine how bad it must be to to just face that kind of thing and I think especially when there's no crowds in stadiums either it's like mm -hmm. so, so fickle of me as like a white person who will never experience anything of this kind so fickle to be like oh no fans in stadiums like players will players would get a much easier ride now or, or and you know obviously racist attitudes exist in players not just supporters yeah and I think oh, kind of going back also to, to the idea that you can sort of cure racism by beating it it's almost an extension of the idea that if you debate these ideas and you say platform, you know, not to name names, but I will, uh, Nigel Farage or, or someone of that character that, oh, if you just debate them and debate their ideas in the open free media market, then um, they'll obviously be, be proven wrong and all their supporters will be humiliated and forced to accept that you're right. And that's just not how these things work. You actually have to make a strong statement, direct action is the only way that these things actually you know, get resolved. And that's what, for example, players groups have been saying for a long time. You have strong advocates in kind of um, essentially, yeah, you know, these player unions and FIFA saying, you know, if, if players walk off, then you should walk off in solidarity with them and, and just not play the game. And it's also sad to see, because I'm sure, for example, say if caddies themselves have um, black players, we've got players, I say, in a team with, with their colleagues who have then kind of racially abused someone else from the other team. Imagine how that makes those players feel um, that their own teammate could do something um, that kind of challenges their own their own humanity, really. I mean, it's kind of sole question to see that's still going on. Obviously, kind of, yeah, in, in this day and age when we might kind of pat ourselves on the back and say, uh, look what we've done to, to end racism. Um, but still just kind of, as you say, you would, you would have fought without fans in the stadium um, that wouldn't even be much of a problem at the moment. But Unfortunately, it's still definitely being brought to light. And as you say, not just in Eastern Europe, but in Spain, in the UK and elsewhere. Yeah, I wasn't aware either that Cadiz had these, uh, the, the article I read mentioned that they had uh, like quite a left wing identity as a club as well. Like this, 
they're, they're known for having anti-racism initiatives and things like this and to have someone like that representing them like playing for their team uh, you, it's just you just can't imagine it can you it'd be I can't imagine following a team that had a player that thought it was all right to to talk like that yeah and I think well thinking about those famous example in Spain itself again of kind of a working class left-wing club which is Ray Vallecano um, and they actually say contracted a player I think it's from 2016 or so a Ukrainian player um, who was kind of then quite publicly sort of basically a fascist or neo-Nazi um, and basically the fans said you know we're not going to go watch the team until he's released until he's not in a team anymore because we can't support this. And in fact, there was a very large scale boycott and the club were basically forced to let him go. Um, and so I think it's a great example of that kind of direct action, basically saying away, saying, you know, we're not going to support this at all. Um, and hopefully, you know, say if Cadiz's fans were in the stadium and I'm sure many of them kind of appalled by his behavior and perhaps say, you know, put some pressure on the club to at the very least, make sure they get the bottom of this. And if the player, you know, in question, did say that racist comment and did kind of um, held out abuse at Zikabi, then they should be released by the club. And it shouldn't be something that anyone at the club should want to be associated with. I'm hopeful that fans will put some pressure on in that regard. I suppose that remains to be seen. It may be a bit difficult to do so uh, with them not being able to, to, uh, to be in the stadium. That, that's the only way these things will change is kind of this mass mobilization, this solidarity and direct action both by players on the pitch, but also by fans themselves. And it really do have a part to play in all this. Yeah, and I, I think sometimes we're, the, the press is always talking about kicking racism out of football. And it's, I, I don't think, it's not possible, is it, to kick racism out of football unless you kick it out of society. You know, it's not just a football yeah. problem. Like this, this is a thing that's been rehashed loads of times, obviously, but it's just it's so fickle to think that you can separate football and racism without tackling the wider thing of of racism in society because they just they go hand in hand don't they yeah and i think also it's the way that racism manifests is different in different countries due to their culture i think that um in england it's less acceptable to have that kind of almost openly say throwing bananas at black players or cheering them as much in the crowd that you do get a bit of it still in, in England and Scotland. Um, however, I think there is much more of a really insidious kind of racism which permeates certain kind of attitudes and ways of talking about players. For example, the way black players are referred to, perhaps the use of the word, I don't know, beast or referring to kind of a black player's physical attributes over their technique. Um, and we've all seen, for example, the stories about Raheem Sterling in kind of the Sun, Daily Mail, or the British Tampoy Press, often targeting black players for specific abuse or pointing out that they bought a house or a car uh, as if, you know, every other player in their team hasn't done the same thing. So I think there's a certain kind of racism that's acceptable and almost actively promoted by the British press, while they, at the same time, rather hypocritically point out examples of, of overt racism carrying on in terms of kind of racist abuse. And so they say, oh, look how terrible this is, and we're well, much better than that here. Well, they maintain themselves and uphold kind of white supremacist or, or racist articles on a daily basis.
finish off, I've seen in the last couple of weeks, Syria Giants into Milan are attempting what appears to be a major rebrand. They've changed the club badge. I'm not a fan of it. Uh, how do you how do you feel about it, Luis? I think it looks terrible. Yeah, um, I in the weeks leading up to it, actually, I saw a few uh, concept designs that appear on my Instagram Explore page quite often, and there was a very funny one that it was as as Inter called the big grass snake. There was a funny one where someone had designed a badge that had a big grass snake in the middle of it, like making up part of the M and you know what does a big grass snake look like like this shouldn't be on a football badge um but that ended up being a concept idea not the actual idea at least that was funny i don't know what to say about this it's 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 very strange isn't it like what 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 are inter milan doing here it looks like um you know on football manager when they don't have the uh the license rights for for certain leagues and clubs so they uh, put in sort of a a fake um fake logo fake badge Uh, it looks like one of those yeah, yeah, it's mad. Is this so? Is this all to do? Uh, so the the San Siro that is that being knocked down this season, and is this the start of of a new Inter Milan or something like that? I think it's linked to that. I'm not sure if it is due this to the end of this season, but I think that was a plan for them. Um, and I think they want to follow in the footsteps of Juventus, which have been almost marketing themselves kind of like a lifestyle brand, and sort of I think following PSG a little bit as well, really appealing to that. North American market and trying to, to tie in with, for example, with, um, with basketball players um, and sort of have their kits or their merchandise be sort of consciously fashion uh, oriented. And you had that rebranding of Juventus' own badge, for instance, on, on their kits. And which, again, I think is just a horrible downgrade. I've never, I've never been a fan of that. I, I don't understand it at all. No, I mean, club kind of badge rebrands have been a thing and certainly I think in the early 2000s, there are quite a few in, in England. I can recall that Man City changed their badge. Arsenal did as well. Um, I think more recently, kind of Leeds were getting a lot of mockery for changing or try, intent, sort of intending to change theirs. Um, so it's not something that's kind of particularly new, but I think this, this is almost a certain strain of it, which is quite new, where you're actually looking to make it sort of really sleek and fashion-oriented and appeal to this kind of supposed new market. And I think it just loses a lot of the character and um, a lot of the class associated with these badges and obviously fans that follow their team week in, week out, or perhaps years or decades have seen this badge. Now it's just going to be replaced with something which just looks like it's um, consultants have come up with it and been paid £20 million to slap a few lines together, as these things often do. Um, yeah, it's just a, a bit sad to see. It's like the clubs you've mentioned, though. They You have to be a certain level, don't you, to get this glossy rebrand like like PSG like Juventus like Inter Milan um I don't think there's any danger of my Norwich City getting a rebrand anytime soon thankfully but yeah it, I feel like it's something that I probably first noticed um, a couple of years ago when you go on the Nike website and it would be a very a very hip group of people like wearing football shirts but in really random different ways you know like you'd have some people with it over a hoodie or some people with it like like a girl with it tied up in a knot sort of thing and I know, I know, I'm sounding really like old man yells at cloud with all of this, but it just, it just seems seems strange, and it is just an excuse, isn't it, to make these things fashionable and to get more people to buy a seventy pound shirt, really? Yeah, I wonder if it's um, there might be a, a few out of work uh, sort of MLS club badge designers that um, 
that after um, they're done designing a new franchise that they called over to Europe to do these. <laughs> Speaking of the MLS, I, I was watching this video on it and Didier Drogba, his team, when he was in uh, MLS, they were in Montreal, weren't they? Were they the... Montreal Impact, I believe. Yeah, that was it. They were Montreal Impact. And I only learned the other day that they've now changed their name to Club de Foot Montreal. So, yeah, yeah, they're, they're clearly, again, trying to rebrand to make themselves a bit more historic, a bit more important. The plans, obviously, the French roots in Canada, in Montreal. Uh, but this has been a thing that MLS clubs have, have done for the best part of, like, 25 years now, isn't it, since the MLS came in in the 90s with the World Cup that was hosted in America. I feel like they've, each one of them has been desperate to sort of assert themselves as this thing that's been there forever. And you sort of expect it as an American thing, like not to offend anybody, but you sort of think America is all of these things on steroids, isn't it? It's, it's, it's just expected. Whereas when you see the biggest clubs in Europe doing it, you're almost a bit disappointed by them. Like, like how could they sort of, how could they sell their soul really? Yeah, I think specifically for kind of the MLS, this is going to be a really um, slightly shorthorned in analogy, but I'm going to make it anyway. It's yeah, the idea it. almost of um, invented tradition. So um, yeah. by the historian uh, Eric Hobsbawm was kind of saying about the, the traditions of nationalism, and how you invent these things, like, for example, the bagpipes of Scotland that actually weren't a traditional Scottish thing, but were kind of assumed and, and invented in this tradition to, to give almost a character and a flavour to Scottish nationalism. And so you almost see that with these clubs as well. I mean, looking, for example, well, as you mentioned, with the Montreal team, also Inter-Miami. For instance, Inter kind of gives it that air of a, a European club. The whole point of why Inter are called Inter, Internazionale, is because they had a, a disagreement with the original club of, of AC Milan because they wanted to in, include international players, so players from around the world in their team, as opposed to Milan, who only wanted to have Italian players. So that's a specific historical thing that the name comes out of, and there's a tradition there. And Inter have had a lot of very famous uh, foreign players throughout the ages as well. So it's not something that you can just kind of tack onto your team because you like how it sounds um, as into Miami, because there's no reason for it to be there. It's not like any other club in MLS has a no foreigner policy or um, there's another club in Miami or in Florida, which is saying that we only want to have US players. Um, so it's kind of really superfluous. And I think a sign that you're kind of reinventing and using these old kind of names and traditions and ideas for badges without actually having any other history involved. And look, I understand it for MLS, obviously, if you're creating a new league, you want to have a bit of um, prestige and visibility around it. It just comes across as really cynical. And it's almost the flip side of um, the European clubs kind of disavowing their history, like getting rid of these badges, getting rid of associations to their community, just appealing to, to kind of merchandising and money. Well, the US clubs are kind of trying to pivot to appeal to, to history and prestige. Uh, are they going to sort of meet in the middle somewhere and say that this is a perfect way to brand your football club with a little bit of history, a little bit of merchandising, a little bit sort of glitz and celebrity glamour, kind of we all converge on a certain point. <laughs> yeah, while, while you were talking about Inter Miami, I was trying to think of a couple of others. And uh, United, as, as many clubs in England are called, Manchester United, Newcastle United, this is something that uh, comes because two clubs have merged to form a yeah. you know one club that's united uh something else uh real in spain it obviously means that the club's got a citation from the spanish king 
to be called that. Uh, you know, Real Madrid, Real Betis, Real Sociedad. Um, and you can think of teams in the MLS, can't you? I was just looking them up. Real, <laughs> Real Salt Lake, um, founded in 2004. Uh, it, it, I don't mean to dump on the MLS or because it's low-hanging fruit or any of these kind of things, but it, it's just funny, isn't it? Yeah, Real Salt Lake. And then amongst the United, you have Atlanta United, DC United, um, Minnesota United. It's yeah, it is invented tradition is what it is, and it's it's just trying to be older than than what they are really. But but I don't think that teams like Inter Milan, sorry, need to do these things, do they? They've they've yeah. they've, they've got their history. They've they've got their titles, their European Cups. This just seems lazy and like you say, like a desperate attempt to to try and be cool. And even when appealing to sort of foreign fans and this assumed character of, um, oh, if they're, say, from Indonesia or from the US, they don't care about history and they just want to see some bitsy branding. I don't think that's true at all, um, yeah. because part of the appeal of these historic clubs is their history. And that's why, for example, Milan, even though they haven't performed very well at all, well, probably going on 10 years now at least, um, they still have a huge foreign fan base, sort of including young fans, because they like the history because they like the fact that they know that um, Picard uh, played for the team, that Shevchenko was there and they had Angelotti before, or even going back, you know, a lot further to players like, say, Gianni Rivera or, or kind of, you know, all these historical names and the, the traditions and history of the European Cups that they've won, their kind of iconic badge and their iconic uh, sort of Rossoneri, the red and black stripes. Um, and that's what people like. And they, they feel it's genuine because it is there and it's built up over history uh, over years and years of kind of fans following their team and the club adopting traditions and the club bringing players through. Um, and that's what people like about it. So I don't see that's even an effective marketing tool because um, it just makes you look a little bit desperate and fake and pandering. Yeah, you need that success. Like, I think that is the big difference between, say, the MLS and the major teams in Europe. It's like the MLS, you can be the most marketable team making the most money without necessarily being the best team. Like even looking back to LA Galaxy when Beckham came mm. there, like irregardless of how they played on the pitch, and you know they weren't necessarily they weren't that good, irregardless of what they did on the pitch, they were always going to be the most marketable team because of David Beckham and the assets that they had. It didn't really matter what they did. Whereas, yeah, like I think in in terms of what you're talking about, the teams do well, and that's how they gain supporters. They don't gain them because they've got like a pretty badge or a, a pretty kit. Like the majority of people, they they follow football and they follow players because they are good at it. It doesn't, nothing else really yeah. comes into it. <laughs> There's no way to sort of cheat and jump the gun and say, oh, we're going to be popular because we say we're cool. But no, yeah, as you say, it happens because people want to watch the team that wins. What's the hubbub? Did Mo finally blow its brains out? Quiet, we're watching the isotopes. Shut it up, they're losers. Will you be? The isotopes are on fire. Yeah, that sniper at the All-Star game was a blessing in disguise. Now we're in the championship game. Championship? Hmm. Topes rule! We'll finish up with some answers to the quiz from earlier. Okay, so number one, I had Denver Barr, I had Andy Carroll, and I had Rob Green. Who, who did they play for, Luis? Side uh, West Ham. Yes, West Ham. Um, the next one, Darren, G Darren Gibson, Danny Higginbottom and Michael Keane. Is it Man United? Yeah, it's Man United. Uh, number three, 
John Joe Shelby, Wilfred Boney and Wayne Routledge. Uh, come on, Wilfred Boney scored some goals for Swansea. Famously. Yes, yes, he did. And he did go back to wear the number two for some reason. Uh, number four, Yannick Bellassi, Glenn Murray and Jeffrey Schlupp. Uh, Palace. Yeah, Crystal Palace. And then number five, Leroy Lita, Glenn Nittle and Chris Gunter. I think that's Reading. Yeah, that is Reading. Very well done. Yeah, no, that was, that's a tough one. I think, yeah, that was a little bit cheeky on the second one because I wasn't sure if they had all made appearances for, for Man United and the Prem. Most of those Man United youth players, like you say, they do go on loan to Sunderland, don't they? Or well, they tended to when Roy Keane was the manager, but they always seem to have a bit of a lead. Yeah, this was Fraser Campbell, Kieran Richardson. Danny then, Simpson. Yeah, yeah then players going permanently like O'Shea, Gibson. Yeah, Wes Brown. The list goes on. We'll be here all day if we uh, rattle them all off. But yeah, five out of five, mate. Well done. Back to the back to the best. Yeah. Uh, when's my award coming in the post? Yeah, any, any day now. Any day. You're the unopposed um, champion of the world at the minute, so just enjoy your perch while you can. Right. That was that was great. Th- thanks for coming on again, Luis. Thanks, Tom. It was uh, great fun. And thanks for everybody who listened. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. <laughs>